Let's turn in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians if you're not there already for the third installment in our series, The Thriving Church. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1. And uh, uh, we began with verses 1 through 4. The very first time out, I intended to preach the rest of the chapter uh, titled The Impact of the Gospel. And I realized that I couldn't get past verse number 5 without making a complete message out of it. And so we did. And it's a two-part message. This is part two of the message I titled The Impact of the Gospel. Part one was on verse five. I want us to read that real quick together and remember what we studied there. Then we'll read verses six through ten. Look at verse number five. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. So we studied that, that the gospel had impact in how it came to them. It came to them in word. In 1 Thessalonians 17, you can study the words that Paul used to preach to them that three weeks while he was in the synagogue. And it just didn't come in word. It came in power. It came in the Holy Ghost. They preached it with much assurance, believing it could make a difference. And it was preached by men of character, which makes all the difference in the world. And because of that, many non-Jews were saved. A few Jews were saved in that synagogue. And a church was birthed. Because the gospel came to them. And by the way, that's how churches are started. Uh, honestly, a lot of folks that go out and start churches, including the two church planners we've sent out and the church planners we'll send out in the future, we take great care of them. But at the end of the day, listen, they don't have much to rely on. Not a whole lot of resources, not a whole lot of people, not a lot of fancy programs. Most of the time they're meeting in a school that they've got to... T- they got to set up and tear down every week, and they've got to change those locations sometimes for their midweek service, if they even have a midweek service at all. But praise the Lord that it's not built on buildings or programs or, 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 or talents or anything like that. It's built on the gospel. Churches are built on the gospel. I believe that. We learned that from verse 5. So it answered the question, how did the gospel come? The question that Verses 6 through 10 are going to answer in the second part of this message, the impact of the gospel, is what difference does the gospel make? Look at verse 6. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Excuse me for a second. (coughs) Verse 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Have you ever heard of a child prodigy? You know what I'm talking about? A child prodigy is defined as a person under the age of 10 who is unusually gifted or intelligent, even to the point of of an adult, or even exceeding that of an adult. I read about a child prodigy from India. His name is Akrit Joswal. I don't know if you ever heard of him. You can look him up. I made sure that this was true. By all accounts it is. He could walk and talk by 10 months old. He could read and write by age 2. He was reading and quoting Shakespeare by age 5. 
He became India's youngest ever medical student and performed his first surgery when he was seven years old on an eight-year-old burn victim. He even claims today, he's older now, but claims today to have the cure for cancer. I hope he does. What makes that so amazing? I mean, think about it. There are a lot of people that read Shakespeare. And there are plenty of medical students and, and surgeons. But they're adults. What makes this amazing is that it's a child doing it. And children don't usually do these kind of things. They play on their bikes outside. They don't memorize Shakespeare. They don't perform surgeries. It's a child prodigy. When the Apostle Paul and his missionary team got ran out of Philippi, Acts chapter 16, and then Acts 17 found themselves in Thessalonica, they had no idea that what God was about to start was the child prodigy of churches. They were only able to preach there for three weeks in the synagogue. Because the word came in power and in the Holy Ghost and much assurance by men of character, yes, there were some people that got saved and God did a mighty work in those three days, but, but they got ran out of town, just like they got ran out of Philippi. And they had to leave a, a baby church, not a mature church, not a grown church, a childlike church. Yet when Paul sent Timothy back months later to check on this child church, he, came, he reported back to Paul that they weren't just surviving, they were thriving. Thriving in their love, thriving in their hope, thriving in their faith. And then Paul writes in our text, we read it in verse 7 and 8, how that this child church, that this very young church was actually an example to all the other even more mature churches in Macedonia and Achaia. He wrote in verse 8 that, that, that their faith was so lived out and so genuine that, that their faith sounded Fourth, the message of the gospel to those around them. And Paul was thankful, and he writes to them, and he says, Thessalonians, even in your young age, you become an example. You become a model church to other churches in the area. Even as a child church, they look to you for how to follow Christ. They're inspired by your faith. They are following your example. Now, it wouldn't be near as amazing to me if Paul said this about the church of Jerusalem. You know, the church in Acts, where Peter was a leader, and James was a leader, and John was a leader, and they preached these magnificent messages where 3,000 people got saved and baptized on the same day. They did evangelism at the temple where 5,000 people got saved. It wouldn't surprise me if Paul wrote and said, you are an example church, Jerusalem. You're, a, you're an example, church. But what makes it shocking is that it's this baby church in Thessalonica. Peter wasn't their pastor. James and John weren't their pastors. And Paul and Silas only hung around there for a few weeks. That's why I call Thessalonica, the church of Thessalonica, a child prodigy. But how did they become that? What was it that made such a profound difference in the life of this young church so quickly? In two words, here it is, listen closely. The gospel. The gospel that came to them in word, in power, in the Holy Ghost, in much assurance by men of character, made a huge impact in their lives. And the difference it made was so profound that, that people noticed and people heard. And the same gospel that impacted them began to impact those around them. Because listen, church, that's what the gospel does. 
It wasn't that this church was wealthy. Uh, we, we, we give no record that it was, was uber talented. It didn't have a 60 voice choir. They weren't popular. They didn't have a special charisma. There was no social media to show cute videos. It was the work of the gospel in their lives that made all the difference. It's that God saved them. And the gospel changed them to such a degree that the lost world around them couldn't help but take notice. Their very lives and the way they lived out their faith became a megaphone. It sounded forth the gospel message, not just to Thessalonica, but to the entire world. And that's what God desires for our church today. Please get that. God desires for the gospel to change us so deeply and affect our faith so genuinely that the lost world around us can't help but take notice. That the lost world around us looks at this old grocery store building located at 310 West Pancake Boulevard in southwest Kansas, and they don't say what a building. They don't say what, a, what great programs. They don't say what a facility or what a budget or what a preacher or what a choir. May the gospel have such a deep impact on our lives that a lost world looks at this place, and the only explanation they can give is, what a God. That's the message of the text. The gospel makes a difference. First in our lives, and then through our lives to a lost and dying world. But specifically, in the life of this church, what difference did it make that enabled them to be a model church, a child prodigy? And how should the gospel impact our lives in Fellowship Baptist Church today so we can make the same difference in our city and in our world? Two ways. Number one, the gospel should make a difference in how we respond to affliction. Look at verse number six. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Do you notice the first phrase? You became followers of us. He's saying that this church imitated himself, Paul, and Silas and the other missionaries that helped get it started. And by the way, let me say this. It's okay to mimic and imitate Men and women of God who walk with God and who demonstrate integrity and who carry themselves with wisdom and humility. I didn't say it's okay to worship them, but it is okay to follow them as they follow Christ. In fact, you would do well to mark mature believers in this congregation, in your church family, ones that do marriage right, and ones that steward finances right, and ones that have a good work ethic and a good testimony in our community. You would do wise to mark them and say, you know what, I'm going to keep an eye on them. I'm going to get close to them. I'm going to be mentored by them so as to have the same faith they have, to carry the same wisdom they have, to walk in the same humility that they walk in. Listen, for for people my age and and, you younger we don't know it all we don't know it all and and, and for me lord willing in in, in a few months to take the pastor to such a healthy strong thriving church from from a man of god that 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 has so much wisdom in his own right and and has been walking with the lord for for many many years and, and has mentored me as my father to be able to take that Boy, I would be foolish not to mark the mature, wise deacons of our church and, 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 and to keep my dad closed so as to have him as a chief counselor and, and to invite other seasoned pastors into my life. I should imitate people that have been down the road that I'm about to go down. And you ought to as well. Yeah, it's, it's people in their 20s and 30s that begin to think they know it all. 
And that's a big problem. It doesn't mean that we don't know anything. But at the end of the day, we would be wise to get Paul and Silas in our life. And, and, And so then what did they imitate Paul and Silas in? Well, they imitated them in how they received the word in much affliction. And how in the midst of affliction, they still received the word of God and followed God with joy. Wonder why they imitated Paul and Silas in that. I guarantee you it was because they heard how Paul and Silas handled being beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. Now some of you are sleeping. I want you to wake up tonight. I'm serious. Let's wake up. They were beaten and they were imprisoned in Philippi in Acts 16. That's the city that they they planted a church in before they went to Thessalonica. And when they were beaten and imprisoned and put in there, they sang praises and they prayed to the Lord. And I guarantee you that the word spread, that that's how they handled affliction with much joy. And so they were imitating what they had heard those guys did. And they thought, wow, if they can do that in prison, we can do it in our affliction as well. We might have to be secretive about meeting as a church. We might get checked in on from time to time. We might not have the freedom that we want to have. But hey, if Paul and Silas can do it, so can we. And the last phrase of that verse is very, very important because they endured the affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Don't don't miss this. The joy in the midst of their affliction wasn't some fake, phony, manufactured, in the words of our small Texas town youth pastor, slap happy. It It wasn't like that. It was an internal contentedness and peace and joy that came only by way of the Holy Ghost. It was that the gospel was producing this in their hearts, which is true in other parts of Scripture, where it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. You don't have to manufacture joy. You don't have to somehow look in the mirror and pump yourself up and say, get happy. You don't have to fake a smile all the time. You can walk in the Spirit and yield to the Spirit and submit to the Spirit in good times and in bad times, and the natural result of that kind of walking with the Spirit is going to be joy. The gospel produces that in your life. That's what happened with these Thessalonian believers. And so when people looked in on this church and as word spread about how this church was thriving and joyful in the midst of such affliction in Thessalonica, they became an example to other churches for how to endure the affliction in their lives. You know what this teaches us tonight? It teaches us that our attitude in the midst of our affliction can make a powerful difference in the lives of those around us. A difference for good or for bad, depending on how we handle it. When a single mom has to do the work of two people, when she has to be both a nurturer and provider, she has to be the comforter and the protector, she has to be the soother and the disciplinarian, and yet she still seems to maintain an inner sense of joy when she goes to work and when she goes to church and when she's walking through the grocery store. You better believe people take notice and realize that there's something different about this single mom and how she deals with the affliction in her life. 
When a teenager, you listen, young people, when a teenager has endured a difficult home life, divorced parents, or dysfunction, or betrayal, or hypocrisy, or an absentee father, yet they're known at school, and they're known at college for their good attitude and their upbeat spirit, you better believe people take notice and realize there's something different about that young person that deals with the affliction in their life with much joy. When a hard-working, honest man gets taken advantage of at work or he gets screamed at by a customer or just isn't appreciated by the boss or the company like he should be, yet he never seems to lose his composure. He seems to never let it affect his work ethic. It seems to never let it get him down. You better believe his co-workers take notice and realize there's something different about how this man deals with the affliction in his life. He never has to publish that he's a Christian. And he should when the opportunity comes... But based on the way he handles opposition and affliction is a message in and of itself. Boy, I thought about senior adults that that might struggle with their health and and face physical pain and difficulty that that really slows them down, down, yet yet they still go and and mingle with other senior citizens throughout the week and and, and they don't wallow in self-pity and and, and they don't let it get them down and and they still come to church every week and carry that same smile as they sing and, and as they mingle with God's people and still somehow they keep a positive outlook on life even though the nation that they call their home right now is not the nation they grew up in they can't even recognize it in some ways and in an age in which senior citizens get cranky it's it's awesome when a senior citizen is not cranky and I believe we have some senior saints that aren't cranky and they walk around with the joy of the Lord even in the midst of their affliction that oftentimes they don't even talk about Hey, the gospel should impact our attitude in the midst of affliction. It should make the difference in the way we handle those things. And when it does, that difference is going to go out and make a difference in the lives of those around us. There's one more way in which the gospel impacted this church. I I think it should impact us. Here it is. The gospel should make a difference in how we live our lives. So verse 8 talked about how that that from them sounded out the word of the Lord because of the way they lived their lives in verse 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Hey, there wasn't social media back then. But there was a lot of word, uh, mouth to mouth. Um, uh, <laughs> not CPR and not kissing. Um, communication. Come on, come on, come on. A lot of of mouth-to-mouth communication. Um, I'm thinking of a phrase. Word of mouth. mouth. I was going to say word-to-word, and then I said mouth-to-mouth, and it's not either one of those things, but some of you woke up, and it makes my heart happy. Yeah, Lee, i got to be silly. It's just, oh. Hey, listen. Um, Word-of-mouth still is a powerful tool for evangelism today. And here's the great thing about this Thessalonica. They, they didn't have to literally get a megaphone out and say, hey, we're believers now. Word just got around based on how they were leaving their past idols and serving the true and living God. Now, you've got to understand what they were leaving to appreciate this. There was a mountain called the Mount Olympus. It's the highest mountain in Greece. It was considered the home of the 12 Olympians who were the principal gods, little g, of the Greek world, like Zeus and, 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 and Athena and Apollo, to mention a few. 
The mountain, Mount Olympus, was one of the most important religious sites, if not the most important religious site in the Greek world. And guess where it was? Only 50 miles outside of Thessalonica. Idolatry was rampant in this city. They had shrines and they had temples where they could go and worship false gods of any kind. So when these Thessalonians got saved, they had to come out of that world of idolatry and into the world of Christianity, which meant they had to turn their backs on their community. They had to turn their backs on their allegiance to family. They had to turn completely to Christ, and they did. The gospel motivated them to do so, and people took notice. Listen, we face the same struggles in our Christian life with idolatry today. Obviously, we're not worshiping inanimate objects for the most part, but we too have to turn away from the idols of our society. And the gospel should motivate us to do so. I want to give you two quotes, one from John Calvin and one from Tim Keller. John Calvin said this, The human heart, our image-bearing and image-fashioning nature, is an idol factory. We have made idols of money and jobs. We have made idols of sex and power. We have made idols of sports and recreation. And I say amen to that. Tim Keller elaborates, says, sin isn't only doing wrong things, it is fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Boy, that's good. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primar primarily idolatry. Hey, we face idolatry as much as our brothers and sisters in Thessalonica did. And not only do we face idols, but we must respond to them in the same way they did. We must repent. Repentant at its very core means to turn from something. It's a change of mind and heart that leads to a change of direction. Now I want you to follow me because, because to be saved, immediately there had to be a sense of repentance towards your sin. Meaning, when you got saved, you, you, you were primarily repenting or turning from anything other than Jesus to get you to heaven. But just because you immediately repented of trusting your works or your baptism or your parents' faith or anything else other than Jesus, doesn't mean you automatically change overnight in terms of your daily idols. That's why regular repentance, it's got to be a daily practice of the Christian. It's got to be the rhythm of our lives. We must be constantly evaluating our hearts for the hidden idols that have taken the place of God. And we must be constantly making U-turns. You've got to know that there were times when these Thessalonian believers would wake up and walk out to their front porch and, and they would look... Uh, toward the, the southwest, and, and they would see that large mountain ascending out of the water 50 miles away, and it would remind them of all the little G gods that they left. And with the little G gods, they left a mom, and they left a dad, and they left a brother, and they left a sister, and they left adult children, and they left grandparents, and they left friends, and they left bosses, and they lost jobs, and they lost prominence in the community. And they lost respect by people they loved for years. And you got to think on the tough days when on a Sunday night they got ran out of Jason's house and they got threatened for their spiritual religious freedom. You got to think that there were some mornings where they walked out and they said, oh man, I think I might go back today. I think I might go back to that little G-God. I think I might run back. It was easier then. It's more popular then. 
It's more comfortable then. There's more pleasure in that life than there is in the life of Christianity right now. But constantly, daily, the rhythm of their life, even when they saw Mount Olympus and the little gods were screaming for their allegiance, they would turn their direction. They would repent. And we must do the same. You'll wake up on Monday and there it'll be the idol of materialism. Money and wealth and possessions and novelty. It'll be calling your name. The God of materialism will go with you to work. It will go with you to the store. It will go with you to Amazon.com. It'll go with you to the restaurant. It will go with you to church, especially during the offering time. And it will be constantly pleading for your allegiance. You must turn. When it calls your name, you must repent. You will go home every day and there it will be the idol of self. Self will try and boss you around and lead your life. Self will tell you to neglect your marriage. Self will tell you to veg out and ignore your children. Self will tell you to indulge in whatever selfish habit you wish to indulge in. It will tell you to spend your money on you. It will tell you to live your life for you. It will tell you to be the center of your own world. You must go home and every day in your heart you must repent and turn from the idol of self. You'll come to church and there it will be the idol of pride. The pride-filled ambition will be crying for your allegiance. The God of pride will cause you to sing for your own glory. The God of pride will cause you to get upset when you're not recognized or appreciated. The God of pride will cause you to only talk to those in your clique. The God of pride will cause you to get easily offended. The God of pride will cause you to make worship all about yourself. The God of pride will cause you to hear a preaching message like this, but never apply it to your own life, only to the lives of those around you. And every time you come into this place, Fellowship Baptist Church, you must repent and turn from the little G God of pride. And here's the beautiful thing about the Thessalonians' repentance and our repentance from false idols. When we turn from something, we are turning to something else. Or in this case, someone else. Because the verse said they turned from idols to serve the true and living God. And when you turn away from false idols, you are turning away from something that is dead and you are turning to someone that is alive. Don't be fooled. Money can't buy what God can provide. Sex can't provide what God can provide. Success can't add to your life what God can add to your life. Nothing new in this world can add what, what, what a new life in Christ can add to your life. No false otter, uh, uh, idol can, can infuse joy into your heart like Jesus Christ can infuse joy into your heart. Hey, when you turn from your God, the little G gods, to the true and living big G God, you are turning to someone so much better. Just look at Scripture, and I'm not trying to search for amens, but you can give them if you want. Because, because God is described purposefully by many, many names in the Bible that prove his, his, that, that he transcends every other false god. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the bright and morning star. He's the lily of the valley. He's the rose of Sharon. He's the rock of salvation. He's the great shepherd. He's the righteous judge. He's the tower. He's the refuge. He's the strength. He's the shield. He's the omnipotent one. He's the omniscient one. He's the omnipresent one. Hey, he's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. He's the fount of living water. And when you drink from him, you'll never get thirsty again. I'm just saying the Christian life 
life isn't just about saying no to false gods. It's about the privilege of saying yes to the true God. It's not just denying ourselves the pleasures of sin, one boring decision after another. No, it's dedicating ourselves to the one who died for our sin. So when you read this passage and say, well, that's what the gospel did in their life. I don't know if I want to have to say no to everything in my life. Hey, there's a greater yes. It's a true and living God. How did they make such a radical decision? Verse 10 tells us because they were future oriented. Look, and to wait for his son from heaven. I believe this thought is related to the thought of turning from their idols. Because the mindset was future oriented. They, they were waiting for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. It wasn't about the here and now for them. They lost sight of the almighty dollar. They lost sight of the instant popularity. They lost sight of even comfort and convenience of family that would accept them. Because they were future oriented. When the gospel came to them and they repented, they immediately started living their lives with the return of Christ in mind. And when people around them saw how this future oriented life began to change the way they made decisions and it began to change the way they spent their money and it changed the way they spent their time and how it reordered their priorities and it realigned their passions. When the lost and dying world saw this, it made such a difference. Check this out. That when the Apostle Paul went to the area around Thessalonica to tell others about Christ, they already heard about Christ. Verse 8 says, not through the spoken word, but through the changed lives of these Thessalonian believers. Could that be said of those around you? Is there something so noticeably different about your life and what and who you serve and how you think that if your preacher went to invite your coworker to church, they'd interrupt me. And tell me, oh, isn't that where so-and-so goes? I love them. I love working with them. They're so great. In fact, they've already invited me to your church several times. Or would they have to interrupt me and say, oh, no, no, no. Not interested. Doesn't so-and-so go there? Oh, well. Doesn't seem to make much of a difference in their life. Uh-uh. I follow so-and-so from your church on social media. I'm not really sure I want to be around them, but that's the way they act at church, too. Yeah. So Paul could write with thankfulness to this young church because of the way the gospel had impacted their life and the way that the gospel is impacting the lives of those around them. And may it be said of Fellowship Baptist Church, that we are people whose lives have been deeply impacted by the gospel. And the difference that we are allowing it to make in our lives on a daily basis is by God's grace and for his glory making a difference in the lives of those around us. So are you letting the gospel make a difference in how you handle the affliction in your life? The affliction at work, affliction in your familial relationships, Affliction in your financial life and whatever the case might be, is your response noticeably different, more composed, more trusting? And how has the gospel really made a difference in the way you're living your life? Has it? 
I'm not, I'm not saying that you go home and on, instantly just start changing the outward. That's nothing short of behavior modification, and that's short-lived. That's not what I'm preaching tonight. I'm preaching about heart transformation. Because when the gospel gets in here, and you live it every day, by the way, it's not just a, a saving gospel, it's a sanctifying gospel. And it calls you to be more holy and more holy and more holy because you serve a holy God. And if for some, for some reason you've, you've stopped allowing the gospel to work a sanctifying, deep work in your life, you need to repent of that. If there are in, hidden idols in your heart and you know it, you need to repent of that. I'm talking about good things that have become the ultimate thing. You need to repent of that. Because sin at its core is idolatry. And we cannot make a difference for the true and living God if we are dedicated to little g-gods. Lord, help us from the inside out to be a church that is impacted by the gospel. And through us, a lost and dying world is impacted with that same gospel. If you agree with the Bible, say amen together. Let's stand to our feet, every head bowed and every eye closed.